This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Spark My Muse. Today, I have Wynn Collier, the author of A Burning in My Bones, the authorized biography of Eugene Peterson, the translator of The Message. Wynn was a pastor for 25 years, founding pastor, the All Souls Charlottesville Church, and he now serves at Western Theological Seminary as the director of the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination and an associate professor of pastoral theology and Christian imagination. He is also the director of the Genesis Project. And I just want to welcome you here and and also ask you about some of the things you're involved with, including the Genesis Project, because as I was looking into that, um, that sounds like a very special organization. Maybe you can just introduce yourself a little bit to us. Sure. Thank you for inviting me into this conversation, Lisa. I appreciate it. Um, Yeah, so for 25 years or so, I've been involved in uh, being a pastor in church and parish work, and very dear to my heart has been this question of what does it mean to be a pastor and a pastor in our moment in history. And and the Genesis Project is a very small grassroots uh, community that's grown up to be an encouragement to pastors and and as well as business persons and and writers and people who take their craft seriously for the work of participating in God's story in the world. And it's it's about friendship and the group's about twenty one years old and it's been a joy mm-hmm. to be part of that. And in some ways it's it's very similar in heart, um, in a different setting in a different way, but to the to the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination as well. It's blending these questions of what does it mean to be a faithful pastor in our time? Um, what does it look like to have genuine friendships that mm-hmm. help you tend to your soul and tend to another soul? And then and then questions of what does it mean to be um, someone who thinks deeply about their craft? It's the kind of people that were always drawn to Eugene, uh, circles of writers and musicians and artists and people that I would just call curious Christians who were a little bit disillusioned, but also wanted to remain hopeful. And so all of those, all of those Mm -hmm. kinds of friendships and people all thrown into the mix. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful thing. (laughs) That's one of the things that was really touching. And I think, thread throughout the biography was just how much his connections supported his life, affected his life, meant a lot to him, but also were part of his own spiritual formation and how much his life and his ability to listen and uh, converse with people, not just be a, a preacher or someone who would give a sermon, but somebody who was very relational and able to converse with people in deep ways, relational ways throughout his whole life, getting him better and better at it. I think as he went, uh, that is a really prominent feature in his biography and in his life. Yeah, that's, that's right. And you know, Eugene would say that all theology is ultimately relational, um, mm. that you can't do theology if it's not relational. 
And that was grounded for him in his understanding of the Trinity mm-hmm. that uh, to abstract ideas into, into sort of theoretical things that you just think about or work on, but they're extracted from flesh and blood from other people from lived communities. It's why place was mm-hmm. so essential to him as well. Mm-hmm. He, he thought you couldn't abstract pastoral ministry from the few blocks that you happen to live in and the people who lived mm-hmm. there. And mm-hmm. so yeah, and I think listening, you know, maybe that'll come up later, but listening is certainly a, a, a central posture of, of his life. Yeah, there's the one piece in the book that says spiritual theology is what pastors do and what Jesus lived in the round. Uh, there's something very fleshy about living a life that can get messy with our own lives this way and, and with other people's lives this way. But this was what he was willing to do to have a kind of life the kind of Christian life and the kind of authentic life that was needed for, for not just his craft, but to be a disciple of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's, it's partly why he just his entire life uh, resisted abstractions. Mm -hmm. It's kind of put him in odd places at times because, Mm -hmm. you know, the world we live in is very prone to big ideas, big action, (laughs) we don't usually take the time to really listen well, to, to respond, to know the the true story. And Mm -hmm. that just, that just didn't resonate with him at all. Mm. Well, backing up a little bit to this enormous undertaking of doing a biography of someone who lived a long life, uh, had quite a lot of popularity for decades, uh, wrote a translation that is in the vernacular really of, of the entire Bible. So he had, huge fans and he had detractors because of this, of course. But this is something that must have taken a long time. You worked closely with the Peterson family. You knew Eugene. And what can you tell us about how this project came to be and and how those relationships turned into what became this book? It's really just an unlikeliest thing, to be honest with you. There there are so many times over the the four years I was working on this that I, I would just sort of shaking my head as I can't believe I'm actually doing this. Um, <laughs> so I first encountered Eugene uh, probably, or Eugene's work, his voice was uh, probably 2000. I was the pastor of a, of a small church in Denver, Colorado. And one of the elders of the church one Sunday came up to me and and said, when I have a book, I, I think you'll really like it. And he handed me a copy of one of Eugene's pastoral theology books called Working the Angles, The, Sh- the Shape of Pastoral Integrity. Mm-hmm. And um, I went home and uh, you know, years later, thinking about that, when whenever he kindly said, I think you'll like this, I think what he really meant is I think you need this. <laughs> and uh, so I, uh, I went home before Sunday nap. I opened it up, began to read the first couple pages and I, I was only paragraphs in and something mm. deep and profound pierced my soul. Mm. He was putting language to some of the deepest aches of my heart. Um, mm. He was describing the, the dilemma of being a pastor in language that I, it, it just rang so true to me. So mm. I began to read and um, over the coming couple years I just read whatever I could find of Eugene and my first book 
was coming out in, I think it was 2004. One of the, the editors at that publishing house knew Eugene and worked with him. I twisted his arm and he gave me <laughs> Eugene's address in Montana and I wrote him and we just began writing back and forth. Eventually I, I went to Juneau, Alaska because he and his son Eric were, were co leading a, a spiritual life weekend at a little Presbyterian church in Juneau. And I had, I had a breakfast with him there and he graciously put up with me grilling him with all kinds of questions. And we just continued to write. And in many ways he, he was a pastor to me. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, 2016, I did a pastoral retreat to Montana in that time, got together with Eugene and I assumed it was my last time to see him. Mm-hmm. But as I was coming back from, from that trip, I just began to think about his life and thinking about that someday somebody's going to tell his story. And I began to have some hopes for how I thought that would be told and some things I hoped wouldn't be done with his life story used in mm-hmm. ways that weren't true to him. And long story short, I, I uh, wrote him a letter just telling him what I would hope for his biography and, mm. uh, I thought the last thing in the world that he would want, honestly, is a biography. Um, <laughs> he called me a couple of weeks later, and um, I just asked him. I said, "I said, Eugene, when when you hear me talking about you know writing your story, does that energize you or does it make you tired?" And mm-hmm. and he just said, you know, in his gravelly voice, like, "When it makes me tired." Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought that would be the end of the conversation, but for mm-hmm. some reason, we we kept talking, and about fifteen minutes later. He, he said, when I, I think I'm energized now, I think you should do this. I'll help you. <laughs> so, uh, spent the next couple of years, lots of time, um, at the Flathead Lake with Jean and I'm mean, Eugene and, and Jan and carting home to Virginia at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, all these boxes and duffel bags filled with letters and journals and, and, uh, off we were. And mm-hmm. it was a, daunting um experience it was a holy experience it was it was beautiful um and i'm i'm really glad i've crossed the finish line (laughs) well we started talking about place a little bit and you mentioned flathead lake this place you say enveloped gene in the vibrant reality of a living present god flathead lake was this place and how did it come into the family? What was the Petersons' relationship to it? How did it shape him? Uh, there's so much in the book about Flathead Lake and, and what a, a kind of sacred space it was, but it, it served a lot of different purposes throughout his lifetime. Yeah, so uh, he grew up in Lakeside, which is just up the road from from the lake, and um, his dad was a butcher, and his dad, when Eugene was middle school, late middle school, bought these acres right on the lake. And he and Eugene actually built the first cabin there together. So it was sort of a getaway place. And it, but it became a place where Eugene, even the first couple of years after it was done, he would go there for days mm-hmm. on end by himself and just be there at the lake and, and breed and swim. And, and, uh, it was a place they went to regularly and, then over the years, it just became sort of the center place for his parents. And then uh, eventually it became Jan and Eugene's home. They added on to it and 
fix it up a little bit. And it really became a place of, I don't quite know how to describe it. You, you really did have to walk mm. inside those doors. And mm. there was something about that space that others were welcomed into a way of life and a rhythm. And somehow when you entered Eugene and Jan's world, it was, it was as if you were entering kind of an, another reality. And, mm. um, you know, you'd, you'd come in with all kinds of anxieties and questions. And after a few hours, you'd normally find that your anxieties were beginning to ebb and your questions were beginning to change. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's some, some people who there's just an orbit around them, mm. but if you're going to be, uh, with them very long, you're going to have to enter the world as they see it. And that's the way it was there. And it's mm. just, it's continued now. Um, Eugene's kids own the place and it's a place of laughter and family. And, um, it, it is, it's truly a holy place. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's also, quite a ways away from where he pastored for a long time. Can you talk about yeah. what he did as a pastor and a little bit about that place would be a, a place of solace that they would go to, but it seems like they didn't start going there until they really needed it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so Eugene was the founding pastor of Christ our King Presbyterian church in Bel Air, Maryland. It's a, it's a suburb essentially of Baltimore and he was there for 29 years and he definitely would travel back to, back to the, to flathead. And it did happen early in his pastoral life at, at Bel Air, but it wasn't, it wasn't the first year or two. There were a couple of years where he, he didn't get back to Montana and he began to recognize that he, if he was going to survive, he needed, he needed to return to his roots. Mm-hmm. It eventually did become a, an annual pilgrimage that a large chunk of the summer, their vacation tacked onto his study leave would be, would be back in Montana. And so even with mm-hmm. his, his children, Montana was not like a visiting place. It was, it was, it was their home in many ways, a second home. And interestingly, you know, all of the Peterson children now live in the West. Uh, none of them live on, mm. in the East anymore. So, huh. yeah, um, he did have sort of two spaces, but um, uh, the the flathead was was always deep, deep in him. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't just a place he was from; it was more a place that he belonged to. Mm. Yeah, that does come across in the book. There's so many places in the book where this place weaves in and out of his life and he takes a lot of adventures as a boy. And there's, there's a lot of great stories in there that I'm excited for people to to pick up the book and read all these different stories. There's stories about him breaking running records, speed records. And I, I wasn't aware of that part of his life. There's a whole bunch of things in there that I didn't know. And I've read his books, but I really did come to him, in his later life too. So it was really pretty awesome uh, to, to kind of be introduced to that part of him because I knew him from sort of the spiritual formation side. 
And one of the things that really drew me to him was his emphasis on prayer. Mm-hmm. And maybe if you could uh, describe a little bit of his life of prayer that helped him survive what he referred to as the badlands, the kind of company that helped make a difference to him as well. Uh, there were some real rough patches and he became, uh, he always was a very influenced spiritually. His mother was was a traveling minister. That was really interesting to see all these different influences, Pentecostal influences and all these different spiritual influences in his life. And he was a man that was a spiritual, deeply spiritual man, I think from the beginning, but his life of prayer grew deeper and deeper. It seems. Yeah. They're, they're really, you know, there's probably few words that you could, that you could pull out that would be more congruent with, with Eugene's, life with God, his understanding of the spiritual life than just this simple word prayer. Mm. He, it, it wasn't for Eugene. It really, it's true that for him, it, it, it ceased to be something that he did and it was something that he was. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, prayer, Eugene would always insist was not first speaking to God, but first listening to God. So that prayer is actually our answer. It, prayer is the way we answer back to God, what God has already spoken to us, what God has already revealed, what God has already, how God has already reached out to us. And, mm-hmm. and it was so integrated. It was, you know, the, the, one of the most difficult things in, I think, trying to think through life of prayer is, we, again, we, we usually think of it in the abstract of these practices that we are just supposed to imbibe or, or mimic. And, for Eugene, he thought that for a pastor, there was no more central work to being a pastor than helping people learn how to pray. And mm-hmm. whenever someone would ask Eugene, so how do I pray? Most often he would not, in fact, he really resisted usually giving people any kind of prescribed formula, um, mm-hmm. even though he was incredibly disciplined, one of the most disciplined people I've ever known. Um but he would usually start with the question. He would ask something like, well, tell me what you love. And, and so if people loved gardening or they loved running or they loved um, being out under the trees or working on the car or whatever it might be, he would begin to talk about how God is present with them in this place, mm-hmm. in this thing that they love. And mm-hmm. he would begin to try to, um, to help people be aware and present to God in that and find, find God in that. So for, for Eugene, everything was sacramental. Um, mm-hmm. God was present in every joy and beauty and sorrow. And, and the key was to, to hear God and then when appropriate to answer God back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that there were two jobs of a pastor. The one you said, teaching people to pray and teaching people to die a good death. Mm, And um, those are things that I I don't think are two top priorities for pastors necessarily, (laughs) Uh, which makes him such a different kind of man and such a different kind of minister. There's a portion in there. It says, when we pray, we don't become like anyone else, not the great ones. We become more ourselves. And that's, 
also a very interesting take because like you're saying, we don't mimic other people's prayers or their, their uh, preferences or attitudes or formats necessarily. We become more ourselves in our particularities and our personalities and our gifts. And that could include influences from other people or something or, but God brings us into our own and loves us as ourselves. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing that what Peterson is really speaking about is, is kind of a wholeness that we get with intimacy and communion with God. Yeah, and I I really don't know. I think we probably just as in general, we probably need to ponder more the impact of 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 that, that of that line of um becoming more ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's um a, a huge corrective to how mm-hmm. many of us think about our spiritual life, but it's also mm-hmm. pretty important to understanding Eugene's own posture mm-hmm. in that um, he he really I just maybe I put it in, in my own experience um, if there are two things that I were to walk away from and say after all my time with Eugene or um, in person in his in his the interior of his life in his journals um, mm-hmm. being with those who knew him well and hearing their encounters with him, if there were two things that I would say stood out to me, one is that Eugene truly was one of the holiest people I've encountered. Um, Mm. And I don't know that I would say that if he were still alive. Um, (laughs) He might not like it. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And it also, I, I mean, I say those words with some seriousness and also a little trepidation because I understand. Mm hmm the real idolatry we have to hero worship and that sort of thing. I don't mean it in that way. He was a mm-hmm. very flawed person as came out mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. But, but when you were with Eugene, you usually did walk away thinking this person has encountered something of God that I not sure I understand, but I want that too. Mm-hmm. And, um, so at the same time, he was one of the most human people I've ever been around. Like he wasn't pretentious, but he was a sensual man. He loved the good things of the world. He, um, he constantly resisted this sort of, um, spirituality that removed you from the grit of life. He loved to laugh, um, good music, good food. Um, and I just, I think that for whatever reason, we don't have many pictures these days of those two things being fully enmeshed in one another. Mm. We encounter people that might strike us in certain ways as very holy, but at least in my experience, often they don't seem very human. And then I'll encounter other people who have this this real this real way of life, which is just feels alive and human, but... If I'm around them super long, I, I don't sense this sense of sacredness and holiness. And in Eugene, those things were just completely enmeshed. And so mm-hmm. uh, when he says, you, you know, to become uh, become your true self, I think is what he's, what he's saying is that 
to be become truly human is to become like Jesus and to become like Jesus is to become more holy and more human all at the same time in one body. Mm-hmm. And that's really compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very beautifully alive and, and blameless too. Uh, it's, it's like, it's, it is very rare because we, we can be poisoned by, by the world, but we can also be distanced from God and forget who we are. It's interesting how you, you have in here that he didn't like spiritual as an adjective added to something else to be spiritual is to be connected to what is real to God and everything finds its essence in God and everything is spiritual. Mm -hmm. I think that's really what you're saying is that there isn't this spiritual life and then this other life. It is life. The spiritual life is life. And, and then throughout the book too, uh, you don't, pull these punches and make it about here's a saintly man who who didn't do wrong things who didn't think wrong things and have troubles in the section called i think i'm a pastor he talks about you know a latent messiah complex upon reflection at one point he found himself to be a successful pastor but not a very good human in his own eyes Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe other people would think differently, but to himself anyway, he felt like he was failing in certain areas and had to correct course. Yeah. I mean, one of his oft-repeated prayers in his journals was, um, God, help me to be the man that people think I am. Hmm. Um, and I just found that to be a really truthful, wise and it was coupled with this other prayer that he, the first time I read it in his, his biography, it kind of, it, it brought tears to my eyes, frankly, because I realized that these, this wasn't something he'd ever spoken out loud to another person. Um, mm-hmm. But he, he said, uh, Lord, make me a saint. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. and that prayer continued for decades. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand, you know, how what Eugene understood a saint to mean. It didn't wasn't some person who just um, was other otherworldly. It was someone who's who in the grit and grind of this world was being constantly transformed by the re- very real presence and love of Christ. So much mm-hmm. so that they were more deeply attuned to God's voice in the middle of this world and more attuned mm-hmm. to the way of love and. And that's was his deep, deep desire. And, um, and I, I just, I, it was so beautiful mm. to encounter his deep desire in the interior of his own thoughts. Um, frankly saying something that, that many of us would hear that and find it off putting. Um, but not when you encounter it from a man who this is really the longing of his heart. Mm-hmm. That was a private prayer that yes, was that's right yeah and you know one of the things that comes out in the book is that he all of a sudden achieved massive popularity and was really churning out books there and he was struggling with this popularity as not not even just a burden but that it could 
be poisonous. Um, and he talks about facing the mob and when he was in Seattle and uh, that solitude would ward off the poison of recognition and just how quickly things like recognition, you could get a puffed up ego or feel like an elitist or feel like an expert and believe lies like that he was this expert or something. So he is really wrestling with not being seduced by the lies of popularity and um, resisting those things using the spiritual practice of solitude, I believe. But, but also in his prayer life, he, he knows that being a saint in the way he wants to be doesn't happen by getting a lot of books sold, for instance, or it doesn't, it, at least it doesn't tend to happen that way. Oh, that's right. Yeah. In fact, he would say, if anything, it was a deficit. I mean, it would, it was dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. Um, he left, uh, I would say during his Regent college days when he was a professor there is really when things began to explode as far as his, his, him being known. Mm-hmm. And, um, partly why he left Regent is he, he thought it was, uh, his soul was in mortal danger. Um, mm. and that it actually shocked him when he got back to, back to Montana, you know, he'd go to the post office and no one would recognize him. Mm. And he found himself noticing that and, mm-hmm. and missing being noticed oh, and, right. and it terrified him. Um, uh, that, that reality that he was, he was, so, had gotten so used to being noticed that now he craved it. Mm-hmm. And, um, he saw that as a, a, a serious danger to his soul. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's became very seductive and very, you know, like a, an addiction. And even he was, he was watching out for it, but then he realized, oh my goodness, I love it. And that's yes. a problem. That's right. <laughs> and it's yep. it's really interesting. Um you know, he picked he picked the quieter road and he picked living in the middle of nowhere instead of being out in the spotlight. And that's also a decision few people will choose uh too. You know, they, they might choose the spotlight or the limelight and then get themselves into trouble by their ego and he was trying to make his life smaller it seems absolutely and it's remarkable how many things he said no to i mean there were Mm -hmm. all kinds of huge stages that he Mm -hmm. resisted um Mm -hmm. and so it in fact most often the only times he went on a big stage was when his publisher um or agent just really insisted like you have to do this (laughs) Uh, because right. you because you have agreed to write this book, you have to go do this thing. Um, and he also, I mean, he did he did want to help and he wanted to support mm-hmm. others and that sort of thing. But um, he did not enjoy the big stage. Mm-hmm. Hmm. This kind of relates to something in the book that happens earlier in his life, but I thought was a really profound impact on him that that we can all learn from that is also too, that's found too little in our world and in our own spiritual practice was his experience at the Kittridge retreat in the Poconos. And uh, you mentioned that it was an experience that really gripped him. 
that silence is an essential antidote to the overly theologized postured um, that hearing from God is more essential than talking about God. Ingrained ideas of success, what you know and what you've done, say little about who you are before God. And some of those portions uh, in the book really, really spoke to me deeply. And I, you know, have to read them a few times and really soak them in. But about um, not thinking so much about what are we saying about God, as much as who we are before God. It really uh, is a powerful thing to meditate on those things and and realize. Um, because sometimes we can we can think about who we are in relationship to each other and wh- or what we know, but in silence before God, you know, that's everything is stripped bare, and we get down to essential things. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how silence figured in to his life. Yeah. So in many ways, we're kind of back to the the conversation of prayer Mm. in the way that again prayer is not an activity Um, prayer is a way of being before god and so if everything is centered on our words and what we say um, that's a fundamental disorder to the core of our life which is god and what's most important is what god says and Mm. So we have to be listening more than talking. Some of this, I have to believe, you know, had to be some of Eugene's personality as well. But I also think it was shaped over, over a lifetime because, you know, when he was younger, I don't think he was just naturally a silent kid. Um, <laughs> but anyone who spent much time with him, mm-hmm. one of the things anyone would say is, wow there was a lot of silence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, so much so that it could at times be really awkward. Um, <laughs> and there are numerous people who would say, my first conversation with Eugene was one of the most awkward conversations I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's lots of things going on. Um, I do think Eugene had a kind of interior life that he was, he was living deep within the soul. Mm-hmm. And he almost had to emerge out to engage with mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some of that. I think there's also some of most of us are really addicted to sounding good, to asking very insightful questions, to coming across like experts. And I think over a lifetime, Eugene just began to see more and more the danger of all of that. Mm-hmm. and he didn't feel the need to make a lot of small talk. Um, some of my favorite stories of people who would have uh, spiritual direction uh, with mm-hmm. Eugene about how at times they would just sit there for like extended periods. One person said it was the entire hour and nobody said anything. They just looked out the window <laughs> um, because there is this obsession that we have to make something happen. And Eugene just came to the conviction that that's a lie. We don't have to make anything happen. That God is either going to act in love on our behalf or we're 
we're doomed. <laughs> and so we might as well get comfortable with the fact that we're not nearly as in control as we think we are. And once we can release that kind of obsession, we actually can find a restfulness in our heart to sink into um, the voice of love. But it requires, it does require a, a kind of relinquishing of our own control. And one of the first things that's tied to our control, I think, is our words, yeah. our imaginations, our ideas. And um, he just, he just didn't buy it. Yeah, he, it's interesting, because you can come to a point occasionally, super rare for me, but that we do realize at some points that our, a lot of our actions and, and words are just sort of exercises in futility. They're not going to really help. You know, we're doing it because we're insecure. <laughs> we might be speaking up too much because we're insecure when we're, when we're um, holding space for someone or when we're in the company of someone in a spiritual friendship. We might at first be thinking, how can I help fix this? What advice can I offer? And it was like Eugene could just be there and know that that was enough because a lot of those attempts are sort of vain attempts at importance in a way to smooth things over, control things, make someone feel better in order to make yourself feel better. And he got to a point perhaps where staring out a window for an hour is enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting at the same time that Eugene was a man of many words. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, his, his life yeah. work and that he's passed us is lots and yeah. lots of words. Exactly. But I think there's just a, a major distinction between words that are born out of silence mm. and words that are born out of striving. Mm. And I think one of the things that I hope to incorporate into my world to be transformed as well is to, to have more of my life operate out of, out of silence so that what I have to offer is something that is good and appropriate and alive as mm. opposed to operating out of this relentless um, striving to, to make something, to be something, to sh prove that I'm something. And okay. I think the fruit is very different. Mm. That's a really beautiful point. And he was an excellent example of what that looks like in real life. We don't have too many examples of that, especially as, culture speeds up to, uh, you know, get those tweets out <laughs> and uh, make sure everybody knows who you are and you've made your mark. That's right. He's, he's from another time too, but he, but it's also not, it's a classic thing. It's not like a, a bygone thing. It's just something we don't necessarily value anymore. That's right. And yet I, I do think there's a hunger for this. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think there's something inside us that that longs for um, a voice leading us in a different way. Hmm. Well, this is probably a good point to close up. I wanted to make sure that you got to say anything else that you wanted to about the book or um, where to find you online. And 
again, thank you so much for your work. I hope we can keep in touch and you can come back on the next time you have something going because I can tell you're a kindred spirit and um, appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate the invitation and um, I, I don't, I don't think there's anything else to offer. I think there's, um, yeah, I just hope people will, will uh, find beauty and joy and goodness in the story of Eugene. I think it's, it's a, it's a story worthy of our attention. Um, as far as finding me, my, my own writing site is when collier.com and um, the work that we're doing at the, at the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination is at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. And you can find out more about our work there. And you can find me on Facebook if you need to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is beautiful. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you.